0: So how many of you are familiar with or have read 1st or 2nd Samuel, story of David and Saul and Goliath? Good, good, good. Well, we were going through this chapter by chapter, and so in all fairness to you, I'll sort of lay some groundwork leading up to where we're at today in 2nd Samuel chapter 6. Um, God had raised up Israel's first king, Saul, and Saul, unlike David, was more about himself than he was about God. And it wasn't long before God relented that he had made Saul king over Israel. And he moved uh, the prophet uh, to go and to find this teenage shepherd boy on the back 40 named David. And God anointed him king, but it would be a process before David would actually take the throne. And that's something that God does God calls, God has things planned for you in your life. And sometimes we get frustrated in the waiting. But often God does his best work on the way there. And and so God's got about 15 years of work after David's anointing as the future king of Israel to prepare him to be the king of Israel. And so we go through First Samuel, and you read the familiar stories of Goliath and David having the faith, and David just opened up a can of you-know-what on the Philistines, and just everywhere he went, I mean, he just always landed on his feet. And, and David, even in those early years, was noted by this, he was a man after God's own heart. Wouldn't you love that when it's all said and done and, and, it, and you're put in the grave and they said, you know, she was really a woman after God's own heart. He, he, was, he was tenacious. He was a man after God's own heart. That was his epitaph, if you will. David was a man after God's own heart. So you can just read the rest of the story. It leads up to uh, Saul was eventually killed. Um, and his sons, and David takes the throne, but only of Judah, only of the southern kingdom. And then there was a, a period of civil war between the northern tribes with one of Saul's sons as king, and, and David to the south. And um, eventually, as we get into 2 Samuel, um, David is able to unite Israel for the for the first time. And he unites Israel, and First business first, he secures their borders. They had enemies of the Edomites down to the southeast. They had the Philistines to the west. So David goes to war and secures the borders of now a united Israel. And he does that. We're getting closer now to chapter 6. And we get to chapter 6 and the the ark, everybody know what the ark is? You know, who saw Raiders of the Lost Ark? awesome movie for us older folks one of the first special effects where that guy opens the ark you're not supposed to touch the ark and and i looked at the special effects later but his face melts you know it was just a wax but anyway watch the movie um but anyway so david wants to get the ark which is in hebron and and he conquers the jebusites on this awesome fortress called jerusalem and makes Jerusalem his capital. In fact, he names it the city of David. But he wants to get the ark, which represents the very presence of God. He wants to move it to Jerusalem. And we already begin to see the difference between King Saul, the first king who God removed, and King David, who was after God's own heart. Saul had himself as the centerpiece of the nation, and that didn't work out too good for him. Whereas David wants God to be the centerpiece of Israel. So David, it's a good thing. He's committed. He wants to go get that ark, which has been in this guy's house. It's, I almost picture like his back barn because the, anybody who touched the ark to that point ran into trouble. But David wanted to bring it, and he wanted to bring it as the centerpiece of Jerusalem from this place that had been sitting for almost 20 years. And now we're at 2 Samuel chapter 6. I really believe as I've prayed for this message and for you this week that that God wants to speak to you. He's been speaking to me all week going through it again. And I'm going to pray, as Kevin prayed with us before, that I stay out of God's way. So would you allow me to ask God's help? Thanks. God, I just really pray for your word. I pray that it just wouldn't be words. Words. But I pray, Lord, that through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would speak to your people. Lord, they don't need to hear from Dave Mikulski. But, oh God, I pray that your people would be fed today because they've heard your voice. They've they've drunk deeply, Lord, of you and your word today. And I pray for all of us that we'd walk out of this place not, not in awe of anyone else, not in awe of Franklin City Church or Dave or Grant or Gary or anybody else, but we would all walk out of this place. Lord, please hear my prayer in awe of you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I hope everyone is there. Second Samuel chapter 6. By the way, you did an awesome job reading those hard Hebrew words. So in verses 1 through 4, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which was called by the name of the Lord of Hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Remember, the Ark represented the very presence of God, and they're wanting to move it as the centerpiece of Jerusalem. Verse 3 And they carried the Ark of God on a new cart. I want you to note that. And brought it out of the house of Abinadab, <clears throat> which was on a hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the son of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ohio went before the ark. So, <clears throat> in verses 1 through 4, Uzzah and Ahio, who which were Levitical priests, and the Levites were the only one to have anything to do with the ark in terms of getting close to it or moving it. were moving it with all the house of Israel, and they were worshiping God as they went along. Now we get to verses 5 through 7. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Verse 6. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark and took a hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Verse 7. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Everything seems to be going well. They come to this threshing floor of a guy named Nacon, and the oxen and the cart stumble, so Uzzah reaches to steady the ark. Good thing, right? He's trying to keep it from falling to the ground, from falling into the mud, from falling into the dirt, and yet God strikes him dead. Worship service is now over. I think in pictures. Now he's, I, I just picture... We're in a little town of Mitchell, Indiana Down near Spring Mill State Park And probably like up here Basketball's a real big deal And when we have our basketball games when, when we get beat Especially in the playoffs really bad We're the side that everyone just is real quiet And everyone's just walking out like this That's sort of the picture I have here It's like they're worshiping God Yeah, we're moving the ark of God We're zealous for God and then all of a sudden Uzzah studies the ark and he drops on the spot. It's like, what in the world? And everybody just starts quietly heading home. So what happened? Well, the first thing that happened is David got very upset at the Lord. It's almost like, what gives here, God? This guy's just trying to do his job. He's just trying to do you a favor, and you strike him dead? You know, we all talk about the sovereignty of God, especially in churches like ours. We love the sovereignty of God, but when the sovereignty of God brings forth a difficult providence, we often are like David. What are you doing, God? I'm trying to serve you here. I remember a, a story of Carly's sister Jeanette. We were part of a church plant, and we had moved and given up a lot for the Lord. and And we went to the hospital, and Carol was in labor a long, 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 long time. And uh, eventually, they had to. Uh, what What happened is, and I don't want to get gross here, but the womb and all that tore. Jeanette went into the, and it was horrible. and we almost lost Carol and uh, Carly's sister, Jeanette. And here I was serving the Lord, and I was, I'm just going to admit to you, I was angry at God. What in the world are you doing, God? I almost lost my wife. almost lost my precious baby. I just don't get this. And it was interesting because we had to stay in the hospital because of the trauma and on the fourth day, which we have normally gone home in, what, a day or two at the most? That was back in the olden days when you'd stay a little while. Jeanette was in ICU, and a nurse was holding her at four in the morning, and she stopped breathing and went blue. And the doctor told us that had we gone home, we would have got up that fourth morning, and our daughter would have died of sudden, been dead of sudden infant death. You know what I did? I asked God for forgiveness for questioning his good providence. We so often bring God to account when things don't make sense to us. And this didn't make sense at all to David. So why did God take Uzzah out? What was he guilty of? Well, the first thing he was guilty of, he ignored God's law regarding the ark. In the Levitical law, it was very clear of how to transport the ark. It was never supposed to be on a cart. There were rings on the side of it, and there were these rods that went through, and they were to carry the ark. And, and they were never to touch the ark. God has already been very, very clear on how the ark was to be moved. So that was the first thing they did wrong. And and the second thing is, the priests were to do the moving, and the priests were to be very familiar with God's law. And what I believe is going on here, by the way, Uzzah and Ahio were Levitical priests, and they were part of a particular family that were supposed to know how to move the ark. Their family, back in the wilderness wanderings, were the ones that had to pick up the ark because Israel was moving all the time. But the parents hadn't done their job of training the children in the way that they should go. And I think Uzzah and Ahio were ignorant of God's law. Just brings a little side note, parents. Deuteronomy says that we're to, we're to teach our children. We're to raise them up in the things of God. Ultimately, what they do or don't do is up to the Lord, but we're to, you're to do your part. And, and I think these two Levitical priests didn't know or were ignorant of god's law i got a ticket one time you know where you come in and it's a double line and i was i'm typically impatient when i drive i admit it but i i crossed the double line just to get in the left turn lane and all of a sudden the lights were on behind me and the guy just you know i don't know why like my wife can cry herself out of every ticket they've got it half written out by the time they get to my window but I just said, officer, I really didn't know you couldn't cross that double line to make a left turn when it's clear. And he goes, ignorance of the law is no excuse. And he just kept writing. The law is the law. And so I think these guys were ignorant. It's like you've got one job to do, and they didn't know how to do it. And I don't think God was arbitrary then in enforcing a clear command of how the very presence of God, the holiness of God is to be approached. We get really casual. You guys, in the New Covenant... Do you realize that the priest in the old covenant would only go into what would be the presence of the Lord, the, the inner sanctuary, the holies of holies, once a year? And they would tie a rope around his race just in case he forgot a couple sins. So that if God dropped him, they could say, You go in, Bill. No, Ted, you go in. No, I'm not going. Oh, yeah, there's a rope. Let's pull, let's pull him out of there. Why am I saying that? God is holy. And Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins. That's why the, 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 the veil was rent from top to bottom when Jesus was crucified. And that's how Jesus has made a way to come into the Holy of Holies. But God is still holy, folks. And the only reason you and I are there and can come into His presence is because what Christ has done for us. And if, and, if, and if we come on our own merit, remember the old, for you older folks like us, remember the old Bugs Bunny and Wile e. Coyote and the lightning would hit and all of a sudden, whew, that's what would happen to us if we came into the presence of the holiness of God on our own merit apart from Christ. These guys had forgotten that. God had been very, very clear on the standards of worship, how to handle the presence of God. And I read these Old Testament stories and it just makes Jesus so much more precious. We've got stories in Leviticus of Aaron's son, Nadab and Abihu, who who. Just took worship. But hey, let's just do something creative. Let's do something cutting edge here, right? And God dropped them on the spot. And, and and their their father Aaron knew and didn't say a word because he knew that what they were doing was not prescribed by the Lord. It said Aaron kept silent. How many of you are familiar with Acts five? Ananias and Sapphira, anybody familiar with that story? Okay, there's only a couple hands, so let's go there. Acts chapter 5. Here's another couple that just took the grace of God for granted. But a man named Ananias and his wife, Acts chapter 5, verse 1, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of pottery. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it, and great fear came upon all who heard it heard it and then his wife did the same thing basically he said he sold, they sold all their stuff and here's the offering but yet in their heart they were keeping part of it back and so we read accounts like this and we go god that's not fair <clears throat> But God's word and his law is still God's word and God's law. In fact, if God didn't enforce the law, he wouldn't be God. He'd be lying. He wouldn't be truthful to his own word. And all, what all this does is it points the way to Jesus because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and it makes Jesus that much more precious. <clears throat> we get like david and we get upset at god when things don't match up the way we think they should match up when things aren't fair with what we think fairness should be and and, and i see this all the time one of one of our ministries down south for for years has been biblical counseling And I'm talking about professing Christians how we, and I say we, justify what we do. We sort of take advantage of the grace of God. Lord, I I know the word of God says this, but I really feel in my heart. Lord, I know your word says not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever, but I'm so in love. I'm going to move in with her. I'm going to move in with him. And we justify and we take advantage of, of God's grace. We forget God's justice. It might be something really simple like I worked overtime last week. So when I go into the stationary room at work, I'm just going to grab these pens because by golly, I've earned it. And we just take them home. You know, I was doing the mess, this message this week and, and, you know, one of those little things. is like, no, that's the churches. You do not own that. And so we have this idea and we sort of morph and in our heart of hearts we sort of know it's wrong but we we have a way, I have a way of sometimes justifying what I already know is wrong. And, And people do this in worship and churches are doing this. This is why Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 10. You don't have to open there. It says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So you have people that are zealous, religiously zealous, but not according to God, not according to knowledge. I mean, we've got religious people taking airliners and driving them into the side of buildings in the name of God. That's religion. And we have churches doing some... You guys, I, just, I was preparing this message and really praying for you and praying over this, and I opened our local newspaper down by us. I don't know if they, the churches do this up here, but this church had this big ad in our local paper, and it says, please come to our church Sunday. It's Bless Your Pet Sunday. I'm like you you're kidding me, right? Is this like a joke i'm i'm I can't find that in here. Bless your pet Sunday. Where is it? you see we we do things in the name of the Lord. There's a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So where does this all come from? It's our third point. David, Israel, needed to understand that God is holy, just, but he's also a God of grace and mercy. Uzzah, now this is important, folks. Uzzah's touch represented his failure to understand God, God's law, and his own sin. And and watch this. Uzzah saw the ark. I, I wish a couple of people wouldn't have left, because this is the part I really want to... So, those of you who have left, you can tell them that we, we tur- we're turning it toward Jesus here, okay? But listen to this. Uzzah saw the ark heading toward the dirt, so he reached out because he assumed his hand was less dirty than the ground. But the dirt has never sinned, lied. The dirt never rejected God's authority. In fact, the dirt had always done its job since it was created in Genesis 1. J.D. Greer really summarizes this here, so I'm just going to quote him. Dirt could never pollute the ark of God, but the touch of a sinful man could. You know what the best thing for Uzzah have done? He goes, I'm a sinner. That thing's hitting the ground and everything would have been fine. When I first saw this in this passage, I was like, whoa, whoa. And I believe these guys were Levitical priests that either didn't understand or were ignoring God's clear command and God struck him on the spot. And when we read rough, hard, difficult Old Testament passages like this, it just screams, we need Jesus we need Jesus but what do we do I don't know about you sometimes I get upset at God and I get frustrated at God just like David and I just I I scream at it at least in my heart that's not fair But what's fair is, you want to know what fair is? Fair is that I should be punished for my sin. Fair is I deserve eternal hell for my sin apart from God. But and while we were yet sinners, what did He do? Christ died for the ungodly. Now, I got a really good story. I normally just read stories and I say, hey, here's a story from R.C. Sproul, but this one's so good I don't want to mess it up. So I'm going to read you a really cool story from R.C. Sproul. Anybody here know who R.C. Sproul is? He's just an awesome guy. Um, But let me just read this for you, okay? Just bear with me. It's a little long, but it's it's worth it because it really illustrates what I'm trying to say here. He writes this, My favorite illustration of how callous we have come with respect to mercy, love, and the grace of God comes from my second year of my teaching career when I was given the assignment of teaching 250 college freshmen an introductory course to Old Testament. On the first day of class, I gave the students the syllabus and said, You have to write three short-term papers, five pages each. The first one is due on September 30th. And when you come to class... You need to turn that paper in. The second one's going to be on October 30th, and the third is due November 30th. Make sure you have them done by the due date, because if you don't, unless you're physically confined to the infirmity or the hospital, or unless there is a death in your immediate family, you will get an F on your assignment. Does everybody understand that? And he said the whole class said yes. On September 30th, 225 of my students came in with their term papers, There were 25 terrified freshmen who came in trembling and said, Oh, Professor Sproul, we didn't budget our time properly. We haven't made the transition from high school to college yet like we should have. Please, please, please don't flunk us. Give us a few more days uh, to get our papers finished. Sproul writes, I said, Okay, I'll do this for you once. I'll let you have three more days to get your papers in, but don't you let this happen again. So guess what happened? October 30th came around this time 200 students remember there's 250 students in the class 200 students came with their term papers but 50 didn't have them and I asked where are your papers they said well you know how it is prof we're having midterms we have all kinds of assignments for other classes plus it's homecoming week we're just running a little bit behind please give us one more chance I asked you don't have your papers do you remember what I said last time I said, don't even think about uh, not having one this time. And now 50 of you do not have them finished. Oh, yes, they said, we know. I said, okay, I'm going to give you three days to turn your papers, but this is the last time I'll extend the due date. You know what happened? They all started spontaneously singing, We love you, Professor Sproul. Oh, yes, we do we love you and and he goes at that point he goes I was the most popular professor on campus but then came November 30th this time 100 of them came in with their term papers but 150 of them did not and I watched them walk in as cool and casual as they could be and I said Johnson do you have your paper no I don't don't worry about it, prof. I'll have it done in a couple days. And then I picked up, he said, the most dreadful object in a freshman's experience, my little black grade book. And I opened it, and I asked, Johnson, so you don't have your term paper? He said, no. I said, F. And I wrote it in the grade book. Then I yelled out, Nicholson, do you have your term paper? No, I don't have it. F. Jenkins, where's your term paper? Uh, I don't have it either. F. Then out of the midst of the crowd, somebody shouted, that's not fair. I turned around and, and asked, Fitzgerald, was that you who said that's not fair? He said, yeah, it's not fair. I asked, weren't you late last month with your paper? Yeah, he responded, Okay, Fitzgerald, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. If it's justice you want, it's justice you'll get. So I changed his October grade to an F. And when I did that, there was a gasp in the room, and I asked, who else wants justice? Are there any takers? There was a song in a musical a while ago, My Fair Lady. It says, I've grown accustomed to her face. Well, those students had grown accustomed to my grace. The first time they relate with their papers, they were amazed by grace. The second time, they were no longer surprised. They basically assumed it, and by the third time, they demanded it. They had come to believe that grace was an inalienable right, an entitlement that they all deserved. I love the way he ends this here. He goes, I took that occasion to explain to my students... Do you know what you did when you said that's not fair? Listen to this. You confuse justice with grace. The minute we think that anybody owes us grace, a bell should go off in our head, an alarm, to alert us that we're no longer thinking about grace because grace, by definition, is something we don't deserve. It's something we cannot possibly deserve. We have no merit before God, only demerit if God should ever, ever treat us justly outside of Christ, we would all perish. We would surely slip. One of the things we like to talk about a lot at at, at our church, at Grace, is may grace never stop being amazing. Of what Jesus accomplished on that cross. So this doesn't end with Uzzah's dropped on the spot, God's wrath, but God moves now in verses 10 through 14 toward grace and mercy. Verse 10, they all sort of leave the ark at the household of Obed Edom and, like, <laughs> And we're just going to sort of go home now. And and then in 11, God blesses with the ark at Obed-Edom's house. He blesses his home. David hears about the ark in Obed-Edom's home and being blessed. And David, I think, probably with a Levitical priest, did some law study. Okay, what does God... Oh my gosh, you're not supposed to move it in a cart oh my goodness the law says actually it was more like this the law says we're not supposed to touch it oh my goodness we're supposed to have worship and sacrifice all around the. and so they studied God's law and, and, and in verse 12 David and the priest in Israel goes back to get the ark but this time they do it right verse 13 says they bore the ark so it was no longer on a cart they're doing it right they're doing it God's way And God blesses them and they bring it to Jerusalem and there's joy and music and worship and singing. Did it right. Do you realize that you and I were made for God's glory? One of the things I always tell counselees, like usually the first or second session in my office and I go, this is a trick question, so you ready? You know, I wink. It's a trick question. Is the goal of counseling here to make your problem go away? Is, is the goal of our counseling here to fix your marriage? And they go, no. I go, yes. I usually have candy in, like, you know, kids' church. Throw, throw some butterscotch candy, or really, worthers. I love worthers. I go, yeah, you got it. I said, the glory, and they usually have Isaiah 43, 7 open in front of them. And it's that you and I and they are made for God's glory. I said, here's the deal. As you start being more about big God, because right now it's big you, small God, but we're going to make it big God, small you. And, and what you do and how you do it is going to be for his glory. Now you get to the a right motive. And now you have the power of heaven to work on your marriage. So the glory of God is what's, the main deal here it's the main point and when you do that guess what will happen your marriage is going to get fixed guess what guess what will happen you're going to start finding your joy in God and not porn guess what will happen you're going to start worrying and being anxious less because you're going to be all about making much of God and living for his glory you're going to be doing it his way and it won't be duty You'd be love motivated because you get the gospel of grace. You know, people look at passages like this and they say that the, the, the judgment, the penalty, exceeds the crime. And, and, and we yell out, along with so many, even professing Christians, that's not fair. You want to know what's not fair? Jesus the innocent dying in our place for our sin. If anybody could yell that's not fair, it'd be Jesus, sinless Savior, dying instead of you and me. We deserve the wrath, and yet God poured out His wrath for our sin on His Son. That's unfair. It was brutal. It was horrific, the cross. But so is our sin. And it took something that brutal and that horrific to kill and to wipe out sin. As we look at this, I, you know, I looked at, you know, I looked through some of my sermons I preached 20, 25 years ago, and it's like, I just preached through. So you need to just try harder. You know, you need to not smoke or chew or go with girls who do. You know, that's an old saying. Let's close in prayer. And and I totally missed Jesus. I'm like, oh, Lord, forgive me for some of those early sermons when I had hair. Oh, this just screams Jesus. You see, somebody's got to die. And it's either going to be us, like Uzzah, for our sin, or it's going to be on someone in our place. And Jesus came and paid the penalty for our sins and died on that cross of Calvary to make a way for us to heaven. Somebody's got to die. It's either going to be you or me for our own sin, or somebody in our place. Thank God I got goosebumps now for Jesus. Because I'd be that old roadrunner that gets hit by lightning. It's like, hey, God, I'm here just ashes and on that day folks when I come before God I'm not going to go pretend this is the throne room and here's God here I'm not going to walk in and just going, hey man hey Abba Father Daddy God you know yeah what, what, what are you here for man I gave up a really good job and planted a church and did all this stuff and, and oh no 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 oh no I I believe I'm going to get in there and and I'm going to be probably as low as I can go. And if he asked me, why should I let you into my heaven? I said, it's only your son who died in my place. That's it. That's all I got. And it's enough. It's everything. It's everything. Oh, that we trust in Christ, not only in salvation, but in sanctification every day. He's our strength. He's our song. He's our glory, and because of him, we don't have to die because he died in our place. We don't have to be like Uza. if we trust Jesus.